it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Lawrence Kelter. He is the best-selling author of more than 30 mystery and thriller novels. His latest book, Man Killer, is book one in the Gina Patati series and is out now from Black Rose Writing. Lawrence, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Terrence. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest book, Man Killer? Okay. All right. Well, <clears throat> um, Man Killer is a PI book. It's based um, on, a, on a female detective. She lives in Brooklyn. And the um, uh, the impetus, sort of, uh, so to speak, for writing this book was um, a series that I had written a few years ago um, based on the movie My Cousin Vinny. And, um, you know, that was a finite um, kind of contract. We were going to do three books, which we did. And I knew that when it came to an end, uh, I was having so much fun writing those books that I wanted to write something in a similar vein. Uh, right. so, so Gina Katati is is very much like a Lisa, Mona Lisa Vito. Uh, she's sharp. She's savvy. She's, um, you know, uh, just, you know, a lot of a very entertaining character. And, um, but, you know, unlike uh, uh, Mona Lisa Vito, who's, you know, madly in love with Vinnie Gambini, and that's her sole focus, um, Gina's kind of got this moth to the flame relationship with a guy named Gino, um, sorry, Rocco Benelli, um, who's a, um, an out-of-work um, parole officer. And uh, like I said, she's sort of the moth to his flame. He's... Um, He's a dangerous guy. He's got a bad reputation with the women. And mm -hmm. uh, she shouldn't be, but she's madly attracted to him. Wow. So that kind of uh, personalizes the character quite a bit for the audience, doesn't it? I hope so, yeah. Yeah, I, it sounds like it. Now, would you say, since you did work on the My Cousin Vinny series of novels, do you think this is told uh, in a parallel universe, the same universe, or something completely different? It's in a parallel universe. Um, uh, Gina's sister, Teresa, um, was the um, the individual on trial for her life in a book called Back to Brooklyn, mm -hmm. which was a sequel to My Cousin Vinny. Okay. And, um, Gina, you know, Gina's mentioned a couple of times in that book, but she really doesn't have a role in it. Mm -hmm. uh, but Teresa's kind of, you know, in, in Mankill, Teresa's kind of the fo Gina's foil. Um, you know, she's always uh, providing a humorous counterpoint. Right. Yeah. It's interesting how once we get involved in these series that sometimes the characters stick with us for more than just one book, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like I said, I mean, I write all kinds of fiction, you know, dark, you know, dark noir, you know, mystery thriller. But I just had such a good time writing these books that I'm like... <laughs> I become somewhat addicted to it. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I can imagine. You know, I, I try to, you know, have the same kind of um, uh, twisty plot line, you know, and keep the reader guessing. Uh, right. but it gives me the opportunity to interject more humor into it. 
Right. And you also had a chance to uh, return to the place of your birth in this book where uh, you're from Brooklyn, aren't you? Born and raised. I lived the first 25 years of my life in Brooklyn. Right. Yeah. It's it's amazing how the city sticks with us no matter where we go. Yeah. like they, I guess, well, sort of like they say, you can take the boy out of Brooklyn, but you can't take Brooklyn out of the boy. Right. And uh, I mean, you know, I had a, a very provincial, but, you know, a childhood I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't trade for anything on earth. Um, you know, I lived in a very eclectic neighborhood with, you know, people from all different backgrounds. You know, we were out to 11 o'clock, you know, at night in the street, you know, during the summer, you know, playing stickball or Johnny on the Pony or Red Light, Green Light or something like that. And it was just, you know, a great, um, great environment to grow up in. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of people who don't grow up in a city don't have that vision of it. They think it's all crime and danger and, and grime, but it isn't. It's It, it can be much more uh, of a home than people might think. And uh, I think that's something that you try to portray in your book, the sense of community, even in the middle of a bustling city like New York City. Right. Um, you know, Gina lives in, a, in an area in Brooklyn called Bensonhurst. Um, it's, it's sort of changed quite a bit over the years, but it was a very... Um, uh, dense Italian enclave with, um, you know, families getting together every Sunday for a big dinner, you know, dinner that started midday and went on until, you know, went in until it got dark. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the stereotypical, you know, um, uh, scene where, you know, the matriarch of the family's in the kitchen at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, braising meatballs and making sauce. That's very much the background that, that Gina came from. Right, and it has a deep effect on the way the story is told and the way the plot unfolds. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. Um, now, you say this is the first book in this series. How would you say this compares to not the My Cousin Vinny books, but some of the other work that you've done beyond that? Because you've written 30 novels right. and uh, they've all gotten really great acclaim. So I was wondering how this one uh, was a little bit different from a lot of the other books you've written. Um, you know, in, it's different um, than some of the books, but similar to others. I did read one of my um, my first um, uh, series was um, based on a character called Stephanie Chalisi or Stephanie Chalice. And... Uh, there are similarities, you know, Stephanie is a, um, is an NYPD detective and her, her dad has passed on, but, you know, she's still got her mom around and she's got a very close relationship with her, with her mom. And that sort of mirrors, um, uh, you know, Gina's relationship with her mother, um, although it's a, a good deal more intense. Um, right. You know, as I said, this was an opportunity to be more humorous than I had been in the past. So they, they kind of go at it pretty good. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always, um, always with love and, you know, it, it always with uh, an eye towards, you know, like, you know, I want you to be a better person or smarten up, that kind of thing. It's never to be, never vindictive or mean. It's really just to kind of keep a, a young gal in line um, as best a mom can. Um, right. uh, but, um, you know, Gina's relationship with, uh, uh, with, um, Rocco Benelli is is different from all the other books. It's uh, more of a 
you know, a romantic thriller um, because they're, you know, practically in every scene together. And, you know, she's got his back, he's got hers, but she really doesn't know what to expect from her. And her conception of what he is when they first, when the book first starts is very different than the way it ends up. So there's, Rocco goes through a very, um, a big sweeping character arc from the start to the finish. Right. And this sounds like it's going to be, based on what it says on Amazon anyway, that this is book one of a planned series. Right. Um, I was wondering how you envision the series evolving from here without giving away anything of the plot, of course. Um, well, the next book is called Lady Killer. So it's sort of the counterpoint to um, to Man Killer. Okay. Um, you know, I can't I can't tell the uh, the listeners who the Man Killer is, or you know, that would be giving away too much. But mm -hmm. in Lady Killer, the follow up, um, it's it's sort of the inverse. You know, that's it's kind of it's kind of vague. I know, but it's it's sort of a you know um, the opposite of opposite. Um, um, tact to, to man killer, if you will. Right. Now, I know that you've written a lot of thrillers and a lot of mysteries, and I was wondering, what is it about this particular genre that appealed to you when you were starting your writing career? I, su I suppose that's what I always enjoyed reading. Um, I was always a big fan of, you know, people like Nelson DeMille and Michael Connolly and David Baldacci, and it it just sort of you know appealed to me. I mean, I've I've tried reading everything from the classics to uh, to what you might call fine literature, and mm -hmm. it's just what resonated with me. Right. It's funny how the genre seems to find us, uh, no matter how we might try to avoid it. You know what? No matter what the genre is, if it's cozies or if it's thrillers or if it's science fiction, it, it seems like our reading tastes tend to shape the kinds of artists we are. Yeah, I agree. Right. And so I know that you said you enjoyed a lot of the uh, books of Nelson DeMille. And from what your bio says on Amazon, he had some complimentary things to say about your work, didn't he? You know, he just, you know, really a, a great guy. Um, Going back to when I first started writing, um, and this was before the internet, before we were emailing each other, you know, right. 500 times a day, I was a big fan, and I wrote him fan letters before I ever thought about writing. So I wasn't, you know, unknown to him or completely unknown to him. I'd met him a couple of times at, at book signings or author events, mm -hmm. and when I wrote my first book, you know, I dropped him a line. I said, "Hey, guess what? I wrote a book," and he said, "Okay." And, uh, <laughs> you know, somehow I found the nerve to say, hey, would you take a look at it? And, uh, you know, he wrote back. He said, you know, I don't ordinarily do this, but okay, send it along. And it, it sat for quite a while. I think it probably sat on his, on his desk or, or somewhere in his, in his pile of to-be-read uh, material. And uh, he sent it back to me. Not only did he read it, but he picked up a pencil um, you know, for those who don't know, Nelson DeMille handwrites all his manuscripts. He doesn't use a, a laptop or a computer for anything. Right. Um, and he picked up a pencil and he, you know, he pencil lined um, 
several chapters, you know, with recommendations or, and comments. And I was beyond amazed that he would do that for me. And uh, yeah, he had some nice things to say when he, after he read it. Well, that's important too, especially for someone who's starting out in a new venture, like a, a book to be able to get that kind of feedback from a literary giant like Nelson DeMille. Yeah, no, he's, he's you know, he's, um, like I said, he's a great guy. We have not similar backgrounds, but we come from a similar area. And he, you know, I was living on Long Island at the time. He was living on Long Island. <clears throat> he was a, a Mets fan. I was a Yankees fan. We kind of, you know, went back and forth on that a little bit. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, eventually you find a common ground. And, right. Uh, he's, you know, has an interesting background. He served in the military and, you know, he told me about how when he first started out writing, he wrote under a, you know, a, a gnome and his books, he didn't, you know, today he looks back and he didn't feel his original books were very good. So he, he was glad he didn't write them as Nelson the Mill. Um, <laughs> but he also told me how, um, you know, his agent guided him from, you know, his, his start to, you know, becoming, you know, a mega selling author. And one of the recommendations from his agent was, why don't you read a bunch of Ed McMain books? Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and go from there. And he said that was advice he followed and was and it was successful for him. Right. Yeah. And that was uh that it's tough to find another teacher that could teach the craft well through example than uh the Ed McBain books. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's funny. I did not know that about him because you can definitely see that influence in his work, especially some of the earlier books he published under his own name. Um, one book that DeMille wrote that led me on the writing path was Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And that was an excellent book because I just enjoyed the way he was able to tell a story, but also have constant tension and action throughout. And that, that was one of the first books that got me thinking I should, uh, I would like to try my hand at this someday. Yeah, yeah I was, that was a great book. One of the other things about that book is the imagery, you know. Um, being, you know, in the, you know, being in the building while all this is going on to where he painted it was just, just sort of breathtaking. Yeah. And it was, uh, that was written before Die Hard and before we had the idea of the claustrophobic action film it was mm -hmm. really cemented in people's minds. So that book was, was fantastic for me when I found it as a young guy in high school. Yeah, he's written a number of good books. Um, you know, I've, I've read most of them and um, yeah, a lot to learn from him. And he's right, a, a right. great, very dry sense of humor. Yes, he does. Yeah, he wrote a great action book too that was completely different called By the Rivers of Babylon. I never really see it mentioned anywhere, but mm -hmm. that had some great action scenes above ground and, and in the air and, you know, aerial scenes, but also uh, a tense hostage situation on the ground. It was it was a fantastic book. Right. Yeah, you know, as you said, I think, you know, the, the genre, the genre kind of finds us, you know. Um, and that was certainly the case for me. Right. Yeah. No, that, that was uh, now besides um, DeMille, you mentioned that um, Michael Connolly was also an influence on your work. How would you say that You've adapted some of the things that you learned from writing Connolly into your own work. Well, I think, you know, in terms of 
you know, if if I do that, um, it's trying to be authentic. I know that um, Michael Connolly was a reporter, and you know his books are very um, very accurate in terms of you know police interaction. You know Harry Bosch, the way he rea reacts to his um, his CEOs and the way he is around his you know his not his subordinates but his you know his peers. You know mm -hmm. I think it's very very accurate. I've, you know, in a younger life and spent a lot of time with people, you know, guys on the police force. And, you know, I, I try to be as as accurate with that as I can, make it feel natural and real. Um, you know, I also feel that, you know, a guy like Michael Connolly, he's just such a good storyteller. Um, just the way everything unfolds is, you know, so natural and the way he eases from you know from one one scene to the next is just you know that's a real talent right yeah i think a lot of new writers tend to get a little caught up in getting every single little detail right and while i think that's certainly important for the finished product i always tell new authors just get it down on paper in the best way you can and don't be afraid to edit it because you're going to have to do a significant amount of editing before it's ready for prime time Oh, don't we dread that? <clears throat> I know. I don't think I, I hate anything more than editing a full manuscript. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's time consuming. And it's, um, you know, I, I don't mind it the first time around. But then the second and third time, my eyes start to glaze over. And I'm lucky that I've got uh, my wife is able to take a look at it for me and let me know what I missed, what I should amp up, what I should tone down. It's important to have a good uh, support system and good beta readers in that regard. Yeah, I have a, you know, I have my wife who reads everything I write and, you know, really has some very insightful comments for me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I first started writing, um, I had a, I was kind of defensive and I didn't really listen to everything she said. But as time went on, um, I really she's got a really good perspective on, on you know, on literature um, and, you know, in my genre in particular. And uh, she gives me a lot of good guidance. I was mm -hmm. to a critique group. Um, and I get a lot of, you know, excellent input from those people also. Yeah, I always, that's another thing that I always recommend to new authors is that they entertain the idea of doing a, uh, you know, some kind of a, a workshop because it, especially early on, it can be invaluable to help you figure out what your voice is, craft the kind of story that you want to tell and, uh, find the right meter for the audience. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Um, you know, just getting back to um, the editing process, you know, it's coming, you know, around to the second, third time you're looking at a manuscript. I just want to move on to something else. It's, mm -hmm. You know, um, when I write, I try to write organically or predominantly in an organic fashion. You know, right. I surprise myself as much as I'd like to surprise the readers. I hope to surprise the readers. And once I've told a story, you know, I've gone back the first time and smoothed it out, you know, gotten rid of some of the rough edges. Then I just want to move on and tell another story. I don't want to read the same story over and over and over again, because every time I do, I'm going to find something else to pick on and, you know, right. to know when enough is enough. Right. Yeah. Then it becomes analysis paralysis. And that's not good for uh, any artist, especially a writer, because there's always going to be something else you can change, as you just mentioned, or something that's not good enough. And you just want to spend a little more time tweaking it. And then 
you tweak it too much and then you risk ruining it. Right. Well, in that one particular case, thank God for deadlines, right? Because, mm. you know, at a certain point, you've got to give it up and hand it over to somebody. So, yeah, deadlines definitely keep us honest. And after writing 30 novels, as you have more than that, um, they, they, you definitely know how to budget your time. Do you have a set schedule about when you write, when you start, when you finish each day? Or does it depend on the work that you're working on at that moment? You know, through for most of my life, you know, I, you know, worked in an office and I wouldn't say nine to five mentality, but after literally decades of, you know, that pattern, <clears throat> I like to get up in the morning, you know, have a cup of coffee and sit down and start writing. Now, yeah, is it a little bit more loosey-goosey? Yeah, sure it is. If I want to go out and have lunch with somebody, if I want to go to the gym, I break and do that. But I, you know, I try to get a pretty full day in every day. Um, when I was a little bit fresher at the business, I would do it seven days a week. You know, my friends would be, you know, in front of, parked in front of the TV on Sunday watching football, and I'd be in my office writing. Right. Uh, I don't do it as much on the weekends. I kind of take the weekend as an opportunity to do the chores and just chill a little bit, but pretty much five days a week, I, I go at it. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have the vision of the writer as the solitary person in a cabin and just typing it out, but that might be good for maybe editing a book or finishing a book. But when it comes to writing something and, and keeping the creative juices fresh, that you can't accomplish that in a closet. You really have to be around people. Even if you're around people who have nothing to do with what you're writing about. I know for me, I find that I get inspiration from things I overhear, from things I see in my mind, so that when I am writing and coming up with a new book, I have a wealth of uh, information and inspiration to draw from. Yeah, absolutely. You can't write in a vacuum. You know, if um, it's one of those weeks where I feel like I've been around the house too long, you know, I'll take the laptop and I'll go to a coffee shop or you know, a diner, you know, and even in conversation with, you know, somebody sitting next to you or the waiter or the waitress, anything they say might spark an idea, you know, just even if it doesn't spark an idea, it gets you to think, you know, gets the mechanism run flowing again. Yeah, so I agree with you 100%. You can't, you can't sit in a closet and write. Yeah, yeah, you have to find inspiration somewhere. Well, that's something that you don't have to worry about, because I know you know that you've got an awful lot uh, in the uh, in the brain pan that's ready to be transformed into new books and new new stories that you want to tell. Um, as people want to learn more about you, what's the best way that they can follow your progress on social media, on your website, places like that? Yeah, absolutely. The usual go tos. My um, my website address is my name, lawrencekelter.com. And, um, you know, BookBub, um, I have a following on BookBub or Amazon.com. Those are the, probably the three go-tos. You know, like everybody else, you know, the internet grabs you and, uh, you know, you'll find things on Goodreads, library thing, you know. You know, once you start Googling your name, you never know where it's going to pop up. But, you know, I would say right. Amazon, Facebook and my website are the three go-tos. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Lawrence. I really appreciate it. And I know that my audience appreciates it too. They learned an awful lot about your approach to the craft and to your broader work as general. Thank you, Terrence. You know, happy 2024. Hope it's a great year for you. Amen. Yeah, same to you, my friend. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.